Okay, church, if you could please open up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. We are going to finish up a kind of a mini-series, I guess you could call it, on love, looking at verses 4 through 7. The title of this message, as the previous two, is Love Is As Love Does. This is part three. We've been going through verses 4 through 7, looking at 15 different verbs. You heard that right. In the English, it's not abundantly clear that that's what's happening here. But in the Greek, we see it clearly that there are 15 verbs here in these verses that describe what love does. This chapter is right in between chapters 12 and 14, which talk about how the church ought to order and function, order itself into function as a body. And then right in the middle of that, we have a chapter on love showing us the best way for that to happen. So we've already gone through the first 10 of these. We're going to pick back up in the middle of verse 6. But for our scripture reading this morning, I want to read again for us verses 4 through 7. So hopefully you've made it there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's holy word. Just as a reminder that this is the divine word of God. As we read this this morning, he is speaking to us. Let us hear what he has to say. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you that you have demonstrated this picture of love through Jesus Christ, your only Son. That he loved us to the end, that he died on the cross to redeem us from all unrighteousness, Lord, to forgive us of our sin. We thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us as a seal guaranteeing our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Lord, would you use this passage to continue to shape us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might be loving towards others, towards you, as he is to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So, quick reminder again that these are all verbs that we're looking at. I've tried to reflect that in our points that love is something that we do, and it is also how we do what we do. So as we go through our list, love is patient, kind, it doesn't envy or boast, it is not arrogant. Then the next week we looked at love is not rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, and it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. So now we pick up in number 11. You'll notice on the screen, it's going to start with number 11. We've picked up from the last two weeks. And here's what it says in verse 6, halfway through. It says, but rejoices with the truth. So number 11 for us this morning. To love is to rejoice with the truth. 
We have a similar word here that we had at the end of last week. So if you need a recap, look at verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So it's very clear that Paul is pitting these two ideas next to one another. Does not rejoice here, does rejoice here. We saw that love does not rejoice with unrighteousness. I'm going to repeat from last week the definition for joy and rejoicing before I turn it around now and apply it to truth. From last week, I said that to rejoice means to find or feel joy or happiness. So the question becomes, well, what does it mean to find or feel joy or happiness in unrighteousness? And the answer was this, it is to act in a way that suggests that unrighteousness is good. I am enjoying its presence either in my life or in close proximity. It is to celebrate unrighteousness, to uphold, to perpetuate, to encourage, to justify, to be glad in, to take part in. That is what it is to rejoice in unrighteousness. So now let's turn it on its head and apply it to truth. Not just truth, but the truth. It says specifically, to rejoice with the truth is to act in a way that suggests the truth is good. The truth is good. It is to celebrate the truth, to uphold, to perpetuate, to encourage, to justify, to be glad about, to take part in the truth. The Greek word here for rejoice is actually not the same word that we see for rejoice previously in verse 6. It's slightly different, and some of your translations will reflect that. Instead of saying rejoice and rejoice, it'll say find joy at, or find joy in, or feel joy. And then it'll say rejoice. It's two related words, but they're a little bit different. The first word, rejoicing at wrongdoing, occurs over 70 times in the Bible. Roughly 75, 76 times. This second word only occurs seven times. And each of those times, it describes one person having joy in the company of another person who is also having joy. That's why rejoice with really is both part of the same word versus earlier in verse 6 where it says rejoice at. You're rejoicing with the truth. It's as though the truth has come alongside you and you are in agreement with truth and you are both rejoicing and celebrating together. So it is to become one with, to be in partnership with, and in agreement with the truth. So the million-dollar question is, what is the truth? It's two ways, probably more, but two major ways we can take it here. The first way is just to treat it as truth in general, anything that corresponds to reality. I know it's true. I can see it's true. I can feel it's true. It is corresponding to reality. So with this way of understanding it, to love is to be real and genuine and to speak the truth. I think that this is right and good, but I believe that what Paul is intending here is a second way. That is understanding the truth as the truth of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says, 
that we believed, quote, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So Paul is making an obvious contrast here between finding joy in unrighteousness and then finding joy in truth. To find joy in unrighteousness requires denying the truth of God. I can't rejoice in unrighteousness while I'm rejoicing in truth at the same time. And to find joy in the truth, to turn it on its head, means that I must reject unrighteousness. I cannot do both. The Bible often uses truth to describe God's commands or instructions in the Scriptures. The Bible is true and trustworthy in all that it says. We looked at that a couple of Sunday nights ago. Therefore, to uphold its truthfulness is to live according to what it says. I believe this is true, and not only that, I am rejoicing in what I'm reading. And then that manifests itself in obedience. So to disobey the Bible is to reject its truthfulness. 2 John chapter 1, verse 4, so that you can see where I'm seeing this in the Scriptures. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. 2 Timothy 3, 7-8 describes wicked people who are, quote, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonez and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. So here we see that rejecting the truth can be seen in rejecting God's anointed leader who delivers God's commands. So God's commands and truth are often pitted together, and to oppose his commands is to oppose the truth. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul calls out Peter with these words. He says, Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. John 17, 17, Jesus prays to the Father, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. I could go on and on, but we have other things to get to this morning. The point's clear. To rejoice with the truth is to celebrate in agreement with what the Word of God teaches. If we're honest, sometimes this is difficult because the Bible tells us things that are contrary to what we already believe or what we think might be good or right or true. When we follow God's word, we are applying and living out the truth of the gospel. We are affirming that the gospel is good news. However, when we disobey God's word, we are rejecting the truth of the gospel. We're declaring one of two things. Either the truth of God is not good or the truth of God is not true. And we begin to hide the truth, hoping that it doesn't come out in the open, hoping that people don't see. But there is one who sees all things. What you do behind closed doors, whom you speak to, what you think about, 
He can see your thoughts as clearly as we can see a video on a screen. We cannot hide the truth from him. Romans 1 speaks about the unrighteousness of mankind. And it describes all men before they turn to Christ in this way in verse 25. It says they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So in their unrighteousness, they have the truth, but they exchange it for a lie, leading them into unrighteousness. And then, listen to what it describes unrighteousness as in verse 29. It says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There are many who know the righteous decrees of God, but do not do them. There are many who know the righteous decrees of God, but who approve of others who do them. This is to rejoice in unrighteousness and not to rejoice in the truth. If the Bible says it, it is true. And if it's true, we should submit to it and celebrate it, or else we are not rejoicing in the truth. Love communicates this reality. That's a hard reality to communicate sometimes for various reasons. But it ought not to be. Why? Because it's the truth. It is loving. Our God lovingly gives us the truth. And we ought to lovingly give the truth to others. Especially in the church. This truth ought to be communicated in love. But not just in the church. The whole world needs the gospel. Those who disagree with this need the gospel. They need to hear that this is true. We must give this gospel to the world. But we must do this without failing to apply the truth of the gospel to ourselves and our church. Before we can give the gospel well, we must live the gospel. This is what it is to love. Now, in verse 7, we come to our final four verbs, and they all follow a similar pattern with one another, but a different pattern than the whole rest of this list. In the English, the repetition's pretty clear. Love bears all things, believes all things, all things, all things. But in the Greek, word order is sometimes fluid. It doesn't have to be in English. You have the subject and then the predicate, and this is kind of always how it has to happen. But in the Greek, you can rearrange that and have it different. And you can tell what part goes where by the end of the word. So what sometimes determines the order of words is what you want to emphasize. So if you notice a sentence stands out, well, that's a weird word structure. Why did they put this word first here when they normally don't do that? It's because they're trying to emphasize something. And what we see here 
in the English is bears all things, believes all things. But if I were to read it word for word, literally, it would be this, all bears, all believes, all hopes, all endures. The emphasis here is on all, and the word things there is supplied in our translations to help make it readable. But really it goes beyond just things, it's all. Things, people, circumstances, situations. And this all here doesn't mean all without exception. If that were the case, if we see believes all things, God doesn't want us to believe the truth and a lie. So it's not all without exception, it's all without distinction. That means that our default disposition, our natural inclination, our automatic response to something or to someone ought to be this, without distinction. So with that in mind, let's look at these final four verbs. Number 12, to love is to bear. To bear. Love bears all things. I'm going to tell you, son. To bear means to endure, to stand up under something. It's kind of like if you build a building and it's raining and you walk under the roof, the roof is bearing the rain so that I don't have to. Okay? That's what it is. Some other ways that it's translated. To endure, which we see later in our verse, we'll get to that in a sec, to stand, to cover, like the building, to conceal, to keep a secret. So you're seeing now how this word for endure is different than our second word for endure. We'll come to that in a moment. This one is not best translated endure, I don't think. I think bear is a good translation of that. It is to, persi to persist through difficulty on behalf of someone else. It's the same word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 9.12, where he says he has the right to be financially compensated for something, for his work among the people, just like the other apostles. But he doesn't make use of it. Rather, he chooses to, quote, endure anything. That's the same word there, just translated differently. Endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So we're going to get to this other endure in our uh, passage this morning in just a moment, because there's two different words here. The ESV reflects it well. But the point of bearing, this first one, is that endures on behalf of someone, or for the protection of someone, almost serving like a shield for that person. So to bear has to do with putting up with for the good of another. If you are a husband or a wife this morning, you know exactly what it is to bear with someone. If you were a sibling, you know exactly what it is to bear with someone and many times to fail. My defenses wore thin. I, I broke. To bear is to say, I put up with because I love you. It has to do with taking a hit for someone. I will suffer in your place. 
In one place, I saw it compared to the hatch on a submarine that gets pulled down and tightened to protect everyone inside the submarine from the pressure of all the water outside of it. It is bearing the weight of that pressure. Proverbs 10.12, I think, describes it really well. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hatred stirs up, takes a situation and just mixes it, hoping that there's more tension. And love covers the offense. We will dispel this now for the sake of love. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. I need to read this. I have to read this next part word for word. This is how one commentator puts it. I think it puts it well. We can measure our love for a person by how quick we are to cover his faults. When one of our children does something wrong, we're inclined to put the best face on it. He didn't understand what he was doing, we explain. Or she didn't really mean what she said. With a person we do not like, however, our reaction is likely the opposite. Oh, that's typical of John. Or, what would you expect of someone like her? This line, how quick we are to cover one's faults. Why would we ever do this? Because this is what Jesus has done for us. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus bears our sin. He bears the wrath of God to protect us, to cover us from it. And now we get to bear with others, just like he has done for us. Love bears. Number 13, to trust. To love is to trust. That's what it does. This is the word for faith. To trust, to believe. In the New Testament, when you see it describe believing in Jesus, it's the same root word here. To believe upon Jesus. To trust Him. It's the word for faith. Love believes all things. So this verb suggests that love by default trusts what it hears and sees. Now, this doesn't mean that it trusts uncritically. Remember, not all without exception, but without distinction. It means that we lean towards trust unless I have significant evidence that might lead me the other way. My default disposition towards one that I love is trust. Why would we do this for someone? Because we love them. It may be helpful at this point to define what it is by defining what it isn't. It isn't suspicious by default. 
It isn't cynical by default. It doesn't condemn by default. It doesn't doubt by default. I think the most common way that I've seen this play out is in our evaluations and motives of others. And I am, I am guilty of this as well. In the garden, think for a moment. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, the serpent convinced them to doubt the motives of God. Did God really say, well, yeah, he said this. Psh, this is what God is trying to do. This is what God really wants. Speaking on behalf of God in a way that he is not allowed to do. He can't. This doubt of motive is one of the roots of the original sin. And now, even to this day, we do this all the time. We see a series of events or we hear a series of words and we try to put the pieces together, the pieces that I can't see, I try to imagine what they might be and put it together in a way that makes sense to me. But the problem is that because of sin, my natural disposition is to arrange what I can't see in a way that's usually negative. That's our tendency. And before you know it, what is actually just an assumption in your mind becomes fact that is then communicated as truth. And we defend it by saying, well, what else could they possibly mean by this? What else could she possibly be thinking? What else could he possibly be intending? As though we have all the answers without having to go to this person. We see how poisonous this can be. So now we've gone from a few simple assumptions to something destructive. A destructive form of gossip that many times is just because we assume the worst instead of the best. But then, just like our previous example, when it comes to us, we do the opposite. We assume the worst of others, but then we always assume the best of ourselves. And when someone else can't see our good intentions, how dare you assume that of me? Isn't sin so warped in us? We do this without thinking. I catch myself doing this without thinking. That's our natural inclination. Sometimes this keeps us from owning our own failures as we ought to. And a failure to own our own sin will do nothing more than keep us from clinging to Jesus as tightly as we ought to be cling clinging. When I begin to forget that I am just as guilty, my grip on Jesus loosens. When we're playing with the kids sometimes, we'll have our hands on something at the same time, and I'm trying to get it, and they're trying to get it, we're playing a little tug of war, and I'll kind of play this like sly thing where I act disinterested, and I'm like, oh, are we really going to do this? And I'm keeping some tension on the object, and what I'm waiting for is to feel that grip just loosen slightly, because then I know I can just give a quick yank, and I got it. That is smart. Satan is a lot smarter than I am. Don't you think for a moment he is not waiting for you to loosen your grip on Christ so that he might snatch you at just the right moment? We have to own these things. And we have to give others the benefit of the doubt. 
if we want to be loving towards them. Now, don't forget, again, this is given in the context of the church being a body. So the disposition towards trust is just as important in a church family as it is in a normal family. Number 14, to hope. To love is to hope. It says love hopes all things. This is to desire good for others, even in the midst of a poor circumstance. Hope has an end goal in mind that may or may not be certain. And hope desires for that to be so, and then it works towards seeing it accomplished. To start off with an easy example, I hope that I am able on this next Monday to get all the honeydews done before honey gets home. I really hope to get done. That's an uncertain circumstance. I'm a man after all. Something should take half an hour. It takes three hours because I don't follow the instructions. i got to undo what I did and do it again. Men, you know what I'm talking about. I don't know why we do that, but we do. So it's uncertain. I have an end goal in mind. I need to get it done. And until it's done, even though I'm in a poor circumstance, I really do desire for it to be done. I hope that it will be done. So what am I going to do? I'm going to work towards that end, hoping that it gets completed. Hope is an optimistic visionary. It looks forward to what is hopeful and hopes in that direction. It always looks forward and aims towards what is good. When our children are far from the Lord and the circumstances seem dire, and if we sit and dwell on our present circumstances, we would be just stuck in a pit of pity. But hope looks forward to what could be, desires it, and then works towards that end. When your marriage is at a low point, hope looks forward to what could be, desires it, and then works towards that end. When a believer in your church family is caught in sin and won't repent, hope looks forward to what could be, desires it, and then works towards it. So the three common components of hope are optimism, desire, and effort. Without these, optimism, desire, effort. Without these, we move from hope to hopelessness. It just can't get better. It's a lost cause. It's never going to happen. He or she's never going to come around. He's never going to overcome this. I give up. When you lose optimism, desire, or effort, you begin to lose hope. Love does not give up, but it hopes for the best for others and works towards that end despite the current situation. It wants what's best for those around it. It's hopeful for one another and helping one another to achieve that goal. And again, hope is only possible because the reality of the cross. Without the cross of Christ, hope would be impossible because there would be no optimistic future to look forward to. All of your works would be pointless. The cross of Christ is the ground of our hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, If in Christ... We have hope in this life only. 
We are of all people most to be pitied. If there's not a future to look forward to in Christ, we are to be pitied. There is no hope. The only reason that we can have hope in anything is because of our hope in Christ. I know Christ can deliver me now because He's already delivered me. And He's going to deliver me in the future. I believe when the Scripture says nothing can remove me from His hand because I've already felt His grip when He saved me. So I have hope. Love always hopes. Number 15. Love endures. To love is to endure. It says plainly, it endures all things. Now this is similar to bear, but slightly different. Whereas the first had more to do with the quality, what's taking place in the enduring, the protection. This one has more to do with the quantity. It is the length of time that something endures. It not only protects, but it lasts. It endures. It means to last through something, to suffer, to remain, to withstand. I'm going to make it real simple for us. And we see this theme in all of these. It does not give up. Even when it's hard, it doesn't give up. When circumstances seem dire, it doesn't give up. When all hope seems lost, it doesn't give up. It endures to the bitter end. And this, yet again, shows the marvelous love of God for his people. Ephesians 1.13 in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Did you catch how long that is? Until you acquire it. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You will acquire it. Because the love of God will endure. You can take it to the bank. Because of God's love for us, we are secure. And we will withstand. Not because of anything that we've done or we do. But because the enduring love of Christ shelters us with a quality assurance. And then withstands everything until the end. In a long insurance. As we end this mini-series on love, we cannot forget that these verses are right in the middle of this chapter, right in the middle of these two chapters that are all about how the church should function with itself, relate to one another. What does Christian community look like? Each of these traits, verbs, or actions, are helpful and useful in all kinds of relationships. Marriage, friendship, business, familial, and so on. We could keep going. But what Paul is communicating here is, do you want to serve the church with your spiritual gifts? Do you want to build up the body of Christ? Let me tell you the best way that happens. You do everything in love. You be patient with those in the church. Be kind to those in the church. Do not envy those in the church. Do not boast about yourself 
to those in the church. Do not exalt yourself above others in the church. Do not be rude to those in the church. Do not put your desires above others in the church. Do not blow up on those in the church. Do not harbor unforgiveness against those in the church. Do not encourage, support, or contribute to sin in those in the church. Use God's word to help those in the church. Protect those in the church. Assume the best of those in the church. Don't give out hope for those in the church. Don't give up on those in the church. That's the point of this passage. We can apply it in a many other ways, but may we not apply it to every other relationship in our life except the one to which Paul was writing about. The way to do this is to rest in the love of Christ for you. A healthy dose of the gospel every day will keep us in a position where we are constantly filling ourselves with Christ's love and then overflowing in love onto others. Jesus loves us this way, and it's only through Jesus that we will do so towards others. You cannot pour out from a dry well. We need daily gospel reminders of the love of God and our need for him if we expect to any degree to be able to do this for one another. So fill yourself. Remind yourself daily of the gospel. And from that filling, overflow in love towards others, especially those in the church. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We rejoice with this truth. Lord, we celebrate this truth. We want to perpetuate this truth. We want to embrace and to live out this truth. Because ultimately, Lord, this is the gospel that you bear with us in the midst of our sin. Even when we are far from you, Lord, you have demonstrated your love for us. And that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And in this, Lord, we know your love for us. So, Lord, teach us to love others that way as Christians. Lord, remake us into the image of Christ in love. Lord, for those in this room who have not been gripped by your love, they do not truly know the experience of your grace and how it changes a person. They're still trying to love in their own power, and they have not realized it until this exact moment, Lord, as you have begun pricking their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would give them the grace to turn to you right now, to believe and to trust Jesus Christ, turning to him to rejoice in the truth and turning away from their unrighteousness and repentance. 
Lord, for the rest of us, equip us and embolden us to live out the truth of the gospel in love every day, especially to those in the church. We ask you to do this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.